before we get into the conversation, here's a little bit of information about how this podcast series came about. Hello, my name is Suzizo and I'm the curator in residence at City Arts and the producer of Catalyst, a programme that has been designed in response to City Arts Black Lives Matter commitments and a series of conversations that followed. Looking back at the conversations, the group discussed events that followed the tragic murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. They also spoke about navigating the arts, their own practices and their vision for anti-racism within the sector. One particular discussion that took place was one in which the group spoke about the people who had inspired them, both personally and professionally. And so I wanted to produce a series in which some of my favourite creatives from Nottingham could do just that for listeners, particularly for aspiring creatives of African Caribbean heritage. I also wanted the series to give an insight into the journey of some of these creatives for them to be able to share their experiences about some of the wins, about some of the losses and the things that drive their practices. Whilst it's also important to speak about racism and we do cover that within the series, it was also important to give space for discussion outside of it. The experiences of black people are not monolithic and our identities are much more than the struggles and suffering of racism. The conversations will explore the guest creative processes, the 2020 anti-racism protests and mental health. The podcasts will also look at entrepreneurship and the guest experiences of navigating the pandemic. Community Conversations is hosted by Rachel Wilcox. Rachel is arts editor at Left Lion, a Nottingham-based cultural magazine and contributing writer for Black Ballad, a UK-based lifestyle platform that seeks to tell the human experience through the eyes of Black British women. Alongside writing, Rachel has a wealth of volunteer experience within the cultural sector. She currently works as arts marketer at New Art Exchange. Thank you so much for listening into Community Conversations. We hope you enjoy the episode. The conversation that you are about to listen to was recorded on location at City Arts on the 15th of December 2020. The relevant guidelines regarding social distancing at the time were followed. Hello, thanks for listening. My name is Rachel and you're listening to the City Arts Community Conversations podcast. In this episode, Jeremy Prince, a music enthusiast who's been DJing for 32 years and organising Nottingham Caribbean Carnival, shares his experiences as a passionate creative. His range of experience, a testament to the phrase, not putting your eggs in one basket, has allowed him to pursue many different passions. Studying town planning at university, spinning tunes in the 80s and 90s when Nottingham was the club capital of the UK, and organising cultural events for the community. We spoke to him about his influences and inspirations, how music can be a form of escapism, and why volunteering is so beneficial. First up, I asked him how music became such a big part of who he is today. Yeah, well, we come from, I'd say we come from a very musical uh, family background, really. It's more my dad's, more than my mum. My dad was an absolute lover of, of music. He had a vast uh, record collection, rest his soul. We lost him last year. Um, he used to play the saxophone. Yeah, my dad's love of music kind of got passed down to all of us. My, my brother was an avid collector of um, kind of soul, funk, disco, and I kind of inherited all his record collection. 
And then I kind of got the bug as well. So yeah, music has been very much part of uh, our life really. And it's, re it's really been such a therapeutic kind of source of, 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 you know, of energy for me. You know, I really wouldn't know what to do uh, if I didn't have access to music. We had sort of, sort of a wave of music called electro music that came in about 82, 83, and it kind of was the precursor to hip hop. And we used to collect all the music and the mixtapes and from there and uh, all that early hip hop sound, uh, which was more rap then, um, ah, that was the music I was brought up on. Um, and so, yeah, I started DJing in 1988, which makes it uh, 32 years now I've been DJing. Um, so, yeah, ever since I was at school, I started doing gigs and things. Jeremy is most renowned for pioneering the rave, drum and bass and house scene in Nottingham during the early 90s and he founded the Good Times DJ crew. Yeah, well, it, it, it's kind of, you know, the hint is in the name, really. Um, we was really keen on promoting, elevating, uplifting, optimistic music, you know, good times music that made people feel good. So all that was kind of the thing that ran through our playlist is that it made, gave you an uplift. So when he was feeling down, if you, you know, what we realised when we started off as DJs was people used to go out as a mechanism of escape. So people wanted to forget about the five day week and working in the factory or in the hospital or something like that. And they just wanted to let their hair down and just have, just forget about all the stresses and troubles of life. So, you know, we really made it a conscious effort to make sure that our music, our set would raise people's kind of you know um levels of optimism and make them feel better about themselves even if it was just for those three hours so when they got lost in music you know there's a really famous song by sister sledge called lost in music and it was like literally you know when that speakers got turned up and you heard the rich bass and the, the music around you just got lost in music and you just forget about all your worries your debt your stresses work and you just used to yeah get lost so we we, we um yeah we, we we thought that good times was literally what we wanted to create yeah, well it was about five of us and we've all gone off to do various different things to do with music now um but yeah i mean i i sort of found it i was like the technical person i guess so i had the decks and the the the, the, the equipment and the speakers and things like that and i could drive as well which was also a, a, a bonus back in the day um and then the others you know, had their own music collection and we all had a slightly different flavour in terms of what we brought to the table. So we all complemented each other really well. And if you ask me the question, what made you become a promoter and do your own events? It's because we felt that there wasn't enough of our music being broadcasted, being shared. And the music was so brilliant. And, you know, I felt compelled. Other people need to hear this song. And this is the reason why I got into DJing. It was just like how can you not love this record, you know? <laughs> you know, and I used to share it with my family and my brother and said, hear this, Where's this? who made this? What made, what made them come up with this song? And we used to love this tune so, you know, so much that we had to, you know, it was almost like a quasi-religious kind of thing where you have to spread the good word, yeah. <laughs> like a disciple. So you felt like a kind of disciple. I need to, people need to share this music. So in the crew that we've got, some of us went into pirate radio as a way to get that music out there. I went into doing events, you know, people worked in record shops or wrote for magazines and things like that. So it was quite great how we kind of covered all the different media bases, really. But we felt that there was 
a story that needed to be told and needs to be shared. And so if we couldn't consume the music that we wanted to hear, we had to create it ourselves. And that's basically, you know, the, the, the reason why we got into it. Right. So there used to be some fantastic DJs in Nottingham, really groundbreaking ones that are worldwide known now, people like Graham Park, um, who, who later on moved to play at the, the famous Hacienda in Manchester. So, um, you know, Nottingham was always known as a, a real pioneering city in terms of, you know, music developing new sounds. Uh, so like the house music sound that we all know now, really had its origins from a UK perspective in, in Nottingham. Um, same with the kind of hip-hop scene as well. Rock City, you know, that venue. Very, very, got legendary status from back in the day where people used to go to all days and used to listen to um, all this new electronic black music. And it used to, used to be places like Rock City used to play on a Saturday afternoon, can you believe it? And it was absolutely packed, 2,000 people in there. So from then, you know, Nottingham was all seen as a mecca for music. So I felt really fortunate to be actually here although at the time you didn't realize how lucky he was to be based in Nottingham but it was literally the club capital of England Nottingham was in the mid to late 80s I would say yeah it was uh, we had some brilliant times you know best best years of my life for years Caribbean carnivals in the UK have been an opportunity for cultural sharing and a space for black joy to thrive Jeremy talks through his experience organising the carnival and discusses whether it's true that Nottingham Caribbean Carnival was the first in the UK. People, and it depends how you define the, the first <laughs> carnival. So it is true that in 1958, a guy called Woody had the first Caribbean carnival based in the meadows. That is true. That's a fact. It's been documented. Woody's still alive, actually. So we did have the first Caribbean carnival, or what one would call a, you know, a, a parade where you know had all the elements of what we would know as carnival now. Now, where it may become, you know, to come on into question is how consistent it was, because that was a one-off event. Right. So you have people like Notting Hill in yes. London, and people often get mistaken with Notting Hill and Nottingham, yeah. um, and some of the other carnivals who were saying, well, really for it to be a carnival, yeah. carnival, it needs to be an annual event that happens yeah. consistently year on year. Um, so there was a bit of a break from when Nottingham did its first Caribbean carnival in 58, and then it kind of started back in the 70s, really. So... Technically, yes, we held the first one, yeah. um, but in terms of like the, the first sort of string of them that happen every single, you know, as an annual event, then you know London can claim fame to that. I'll give them that because one. Carnival was like the, and I still like to think it is the flagship community mm. event for the African Caribbean community in Nottingham mm. and in many other cities. People mm. look forward to Carnival; it's the highlight. And um, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, Nottingham did have. A more of a golden era in terms of late 80s, early 90s, you know, when the jungle sound first came out, General Levy, Adola, we used to have at Carnival, gosh, you know, tens of thousands of people. And that really was the sort of golden era, if you like. Now, we're still keeping the flame alive because the traditional Carnival still needs to continue um, year on year. So it has changed into a different kind of 
um, kind of animal now. But I just felt that it was such a brilliant event in terms of bringing people from all walks of life and and I'm not just from the African Caribbean community literally the whole spectrum of the community and I felt that you know this is something I would love to put my energy my voluntary energy into because it was so important such an important beacon of 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 the city and um, you know if it wasn't careful we would lose it as well because there's a lot of cutbacks and things like in 2010 when we had austerity um you know we had to really fight for keeping the flame of carnival alive i mean interestingly we the reason why we moved from the forest because people always say no why do you still have (laughs) carnival in the forest but in 2010 we had this thing called austerity where the council basically, I'm not going to kind of go on a rant about the council or anything like that because I don't know who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the longer short of it, there's no money in the pot. Mm-hmm. And all the things that we used to get before 2010, mm-hmm. like um, paid transport um, yeah, parades and we used to have police escorts and all that sort of all that went out the window. Yeah. And just recently, even when we've moved out the new site in. Um, um, in, 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 in the meadows yeah. in Victoria Embankment you know we have to look at things to do with um, like anti-terrorist strategies and things like that to yeah. you know to avoid things happening like you know in London Bridge what happened there with the vans and all that mm-hmm. so all these things have to be paid for mm-hmm. by the event organisers and they never used to be so yeah. our cost I won't say how much it is but it's a lot of many tens of thousands of pounds to put on carnival yeah. and they, we did create a bit of controversy or yeah, maybe a bit more than a bit of controversy when we first started charging for right. carnival and the only reason we charged it was to balance the box yeah. if we didn't ask people to make a contribution of a pound yeah. you know, you know, we couldn't put on the carnival yeah. because of all these road closures and all yeah. these infrastructure yeah. costs we had to pay. And, and you know, I agree, in an ideal world, carnival should be free. Mm. And, but austerity put an end to that and all the things that we used to get supported mm. and the resources for carnival weren't there anymore. So we had to think creatively and try to think, how do we keep this parade with us? All these costumes, you know, 700 people take part in them and, you know, we've got kids who are designing costumes all year long and it felt so, you know, it would be, it would be so sad just to put closure to mm. that. Event. So you say you volunteered at mm. Carnival? I still am a volunteer, yes, okay. yeah, it's not a paid job. Okay. So it's, got a, it's something that you, you know, want to do and love and passionate about doing it. You may not get rewarded monetarily but I actually find that the more you give as a volunteer the more kind of ideas and creativity you get back from mixing with other people Mm. getting different opinions from different points of view it's Mm. and I think it's so rich so I come away thinking wow being with this group of people or knowing what that artist does or what that organizer does or that engineer does it's given me so many ideas that I couldn't pay for this education. Yeah, you know, if I went on a course, it was, yeah. so I actually see it as an education. Yeah. yeah, so for me, it's like an investment. So I invest my time and my energy and whatever 
know-how, I've got technical know-how normally it is, but I actually find I actually come away with a lot more rewards and, a, you know, to give me inspiration for all sorts of things and energy as well. I think, right, yes, I've definitely got to do this. 2020 was the year everything moved onto our screens. It was the first year Nottingham Carnival, an event that's usually bursting with culture, flavours and sound, went online too. It was one of the most challenging things I personally have ever done in my life. Really? <laughs> the stress, um, because it was all being broadcasted from my home, the, 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 the internet connection, okay. when we went live. And <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to tell you all the details, but it nearly didn't happen um, because... There was all sorts of issues with YouTube and copyright takedowns on songs and things like that. And I had to, like, I was playing it in real time, all these different footages that we had. I mean, it all went to, to plan on, from the screen, from a consumer point of view. But behind the scenes, it was pure chaos. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is it. This is where, this is where I go. This is where I depart the earth. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, you know, die of stress or something here. But it, it was such a challenge for me because I've never done it before, you see. So we were really committed that we wanted to do something online, but we wanted to do something online that gave justice to the whole carnival um, community in Nottingham and we were conscious that you know there was all these troops and parades we've still got all these wonderful parades been doing sort of dance moves so we managed to kind of organize everybody in a socially distanced way do different recordings pull it all together do a virtual parade have different performers have all the DJs performed and it really I thought it was a real success and I think moving forward to answer, to answer your second question I think I'd like to think that there'll always be an online element to any on the road carnival. So I think there'll be like a sort of, it'll be like a hybrid event. So, because what we found is that there were people that tuned in from Denmark and Canada and things like that when we looked at the analytics on yeah. YouTube and things. So we thought, like, of course, they would never have been able to access Nottingham Carnival, but if they can watch it in Brazil or yeah. Denmark or Canada. I'm just going back to what you said before about... Um the creative process of organising the online carnival and the fact that you were just at home, like, yeah. panicking. <laughs> it was, it really I was. I think that is often, you know, we're not alone in thinking that it's just us who's going through that in the creative process, but a lot of the time yeah. we all go through that when we create and stuff. Yes. And we have those moments when we panic and we yeah. just think, oh gosh, what's happening? Yeah. But what do you think you've learned from that process now that you know it went so successfully, mm -hmm. now that you know you know you had international audiences, what what have you learned from that apart from how you're gonna change the carnival? Well it's given you confidence that you've pulled it off. So it's like, well, yeah, we got away with it and no one really saw all the warts and what was going on under the water. They just saw the little tip on the iceberg bit, which was all we wanted them to see. You know? <laughs> um, so it's given us confidence. So you're thinking, right, well, how do we push it? How do we push the boat now? How do we, right. how do we get, you know, let, let's, let's start, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, let's bring it on. Let's, let's, how are we going to make it even better next year? So I'm already, already thinking in my head what I would have done to make it better looking back at it. And that's how you often learn and want to sort of move things on into it, isn't it? You know, you look at how you did it, what you got away with, what didn't work so well, so you kind of delete your weaknesses, but you strengthen your strengths. Things that were strong, make them stronger. So I think there will always be an online element to any event now. And this is just beyond carnival. This yeah. is 
all festivals. This is uh, nightclubs and bars, especially mm-hmm. if there's elements of social distancing and things. I think there's going to be now, mm-hmm. you know, people paying from home a nominal fee to access a multi-camera setup as if they're in the venue themselves. You know, live gigs, concerts, they might be putting on a helmet with, you know, virtual reality or whatever it's going to be in the future. Uh, so it's almost like, an, it's like a obstacle technology is. And one of the things I, I sort of personally stress on myself is I am not going to let these obstacles hold me back. I'm going to try and overcome them and conquer them, you know, and then... But that's only because I want to get to that point in terms of the presentation or whatever production or event we want to do. It's not wanting to use technology for the sake of wanting to do technology. So it was never a case with Carnival. Oh, what can we do with all this internet broadband we've got? You know, it wasn't like that. It was just like, people are stopping at home. They cannot move. We're not allowed to have this event. They have got all computers and mobile devices. Instead of them coming to Carnival, how do we take Carnival to them? Mm. And it was just like, well, we do via this thing called yeah. <laughs> YouTube. It's like, wow, what do we need to do to get that to work so that all these people can access it and sort of feel like they were part of a Carnival? Facing struggles can sometimes mean we're forced to use our creativity in new and innovative ways. Jeremy talked about a conversation he'd had that made him look at creativity differently. I mean, one of the really sort of, I had a fascinating conversation with a really famous DJ called Grandmaster Flash, who was actually one of the first hip-hop DJs. And I booked him, or we booked him, as in Nottingham. And I had to, after we booked him, and he played in town in City Centre, this is about five years ago. But I had the pleasure of having to drive him back to Heathrow Airport the next day. So I had him in my car, three hours, just like, I wish I had a recorder like we've got here, just soaking it all in and one of the things he said to me because when he started off in 1968 he said and this whole thing called hip-hop he's one of the founding fathers of hip-hop and he was saying we didn't have access to all these fancy clubs and we didn't have all these access to fancy instruments guitars and pianos and things we just had what we had like our mum and dad's record collection and stuff like that and the radio so he said the equivalent and this is he used this kind of analogy he says hip-hop to him was opening the fridge and seeing what ingredients you got left and making the most tasty flavoursome sandwich or meal out of what's left so you've got an egg there you've got a piece of ham there some cheese there and he said you use your creativity you make it work Mm. and that's how it felt for them in terms of using the dad's turntables and record players and and it was such genius how they just managed to create an art form which is now one of the biggest art forms in the planet on the planet yeah most iconic as well and you know the british one as well and that's come from people struggling in the projects of of south bronx in new york trying to survive but trying to enjoy themselves as well not having access to all this fancy art mm, exactly. things. Or not thinking they're artists. Yeah, and they've never thought of artists. That's right. They were just trying to catch a vibe mm. and just feel good. It's that good times thing again. It's just like, and they realise that all these songs, when they put put them together, in a, in string them together, you've got a playlist. And if you can keep that vibe going and all the best bits of the songs, the breaks, the get-down bits, keep repeating those bits because that's the bit everybody wants to have. And they've created a whole, you know, it's the genius of, creating an art form out of nothing and I think that's 
what I'm really proud about is some of the things that have come through the struggle of our community is the the, the ingenuity the just the, you know the, you know just to say that the necessity is a mother of invention isn't it and it's mm. just like when you haven't got nothing mm. that's when you find something mm. and latch onto it and mm. nurture it and grow it and turn it you know it just makes me so proud when you see how the humble beginnings these things start yeah. and at the same time it makes me feel really frustrated and angry when you see when others people or the communities whatever seemingly sort of hijack it take it over call it their own mm. and absolutely exploit it and milk it for what it's mm. really worth mm. but that reward really comes back to those founding fathers who actually um you know gave gave rise to it yeah i'm always trying to tell people look you are an artist you do in you know, uh, you, you you sort of indulge in art. You sh it's just on your phone. You're in Spotify, yeah, one exactly. of the playlists that you put together. Yeah. That's art. You yeah. know, and you're curating that art by putting your playlist together. Mm. And if and people, oh yeah, yes I am. You know, and then they want to get a bit more into it and start producing it. We also discussed the recent increase in conversations around racial inequality. Plus how Nottingham as a community has previously addressed issues of racial injustice. Yeah. Will things move on in five years time? You know when the whole BLM thing dies down and maybe everybody goes back to default mode? Mm. <laughs> and, and is it only when there's sort of uprising or there's something really tragic that people have to see to be on the right side of history? You know Nottingham has or used to have a very sort of vibrant and active African Caribbean community and, you know, when things used to happen, so there was um, uh, people being uh, sort of murdered, there was uh, innocent people being uh, shot in the, in, in the street, missed, you know, mis mistaken identities, uh, as I meant mm -hmm. to say. I had a cousin, Brendan, sadly, who we lost, who got shot, Brendan Lawrence, a few years yeah. ago. And um, that was, you know, that was, you know, it was quite a while ago now, but I mean, that shocked the community. Um, so and then there's things like when they threatened to close um, like community centres or care homes and things like that so there's been occasions where people have come together and protested. Finally I asked Jeremy what he wished he had known at the start of his career. I mean there's so many things now if I didn't, you know because I'm kind of in, in my late 40s now and I, and I wish I was armed with all this knowledge and information in my 20s because I would just be running things now <laughs> I just honestly I just know I just haven't got the energy anymore like I had back in the day and um, we could go out come back in at 3am and then be up you know, seven thirty next day, go to work or go to university or whatever. But anyway, that's that's history. <laughs> but in terms of what I would know, I would understanding the industry, the music industry, and all the thing about publishing and royalties and how to be the person behind the desk with the telephone and the computer, rather than being the consumable, which is the talent, the artist. And I think we need to be more conscious of how we should be administering our art so how we actually you know the music industry or music business is two words music and business music and industry and we need to understand the industry and the business and the way that works how that operates how that machinery works and I just wish I was armed or somebody taught me or held my hand and say look 
this is how the industry works. This is what a manager's role does. This is what the agent does. This is where you need to be or you need to be learning from this person because that is where you need to be in five years' time. And nobody gave me any sort of hints or had any sort of blueprints to follow or, or YouTube video or something. There's nothing like that. So I just kind of potted about making learning by mistakes, basically, which most of us do. Now, the problem with that is it's time-consuming making mistakes and yeah. I just would love to have a fast-track way <laughs> of just quitting out learning from other people's mistakes and just saying look do you think that the more mistakes you have the more you learn though yes but it takes time that's the yes. problem i'd rather learn from somebody else who made the same mistake <laughs> because often you'll duplicate mistakes yeah. and if i'll make a mistake and then somebody else down with oh yeah i made that one five years yeah. ago why didn't you tell me that five years ago? why didn't you tell me five years ago yeah. that's what i'm saying so if we had this kind of pool of resources even if it was like a mistake pool <laughs> where you could sift through all these mistakes everyone made yeah. and you could just spend your time going to a library and just learn by everybody else's mistakes thinking well no i can't do that because he did that she did that that was a mistake no that was a big no no so once you cut through that cut through the chase then hopefully your path to success should be in theory a bit smoother and quicker yeah. you know because you don't have to go down these obstacles that other people have done it so that's what i wish I had access to other people's mistakes mm -hmm. and there was, yeah, it's like a sort of like a <laughs> repository, you know, just a, a, a database of mistakes. Yeah. That's what I want. <laughs> so I just so trawl through it. Right. What did they try to do? All oh, right. Okay. Like a flow chart. Yeah. Okay. Don't do yeah. that. Do that. That's going to be my path now because of this reason. Maybe someone will create that one day. Could be, maybe that might be, might, uh, might be our calling, Rachel. You yeah, might put together. Maybe the next project. Yes, the mistake database. Here we go, launching now. <laughs> Many thanks to Jeremy Prince for taking the time to share his experiences with us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Until the next episode, goodbye. <laughs>